0: You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 183 Terry Wardell and the Healing Journey. This gets crazy. Well, that'll make sense. Just listen. (laughs) Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins, and I'm super excited to share with you this story today. Our guest, he's an author, he's a pastor, uh, he's a speaker, uh, he's done some really interesting things. Can't wait to share that with you. And uh, our guest is Terry Wardle. Terry, welcome to Halfway There.
1: Oh, it's, it's an absolute joy to be with you, Eric.
0: I am excited. I've been reading your book and uh, you've been through some stuff, so tell us a little bit about kind of where who you are and where God has you right now.
1: Well, I am uh, living with my wife in Ashland, Ohio. I finished about a thirty year career teaching in the academy. I was a seminary professor for a number of years. also been a pastor, but for the last twenty years, Particularly, I have been positioning broken people for healing encounters with Christ. I formed an organization called Healing Care Ministries. And out of that, we've offered seminars to thousands of people and retreats where they come for care. And I just believe that Jesus wants to meet us in our stories, no matter how broken our story is. Mm -hmm. That's what he did for me. And so I've been training people on how to help others do that. And that's been really the gift the Lord's allowed me over these years.
0: Yeah, very powerful. Um, All right. So what I didn't mention already is you wrote a book. uh, It's coming out. Is is it out already? It's out. came out uh, early October. I thought it was just just about to come out. So um, it's called Some Kind of Crazy, which is sort of a memoir. You've written before. Have you written books? Are all your books kind of style or are they more teaching?
1: Most of my books will have stories in them, but Mm. primarily didactic. This book is a healing memoir. I wanted people to see how the Lord can meet an individual in a very messy life and how they can, I guess the title says it: how I can have lived a crazy life. And yet I then experienced some kind of crazy love that God brings us. Mm. So it's a very different style, but I'm sure that it'll help people touch their story as they read this story.
0: Yeah, I think so. The the beautiful thing, um, or the interesting thing, I guess, you get this with radio and audio as well, but I've read the book and so I feel like I know you a little bit already, right? But uh, we just met today for the first time. So um, it'll be interesting. I can't wait to hear some of these stories and maybe dive into a little bit more. Um, Okay, so that's what you do. You grew up, was it in Pennsylvania, a minor country?
1: That's right. Southwestern Pennsylvania, Appalachia, in uh, mostly coal mining country steel mill country
0: yeah what was that like because this is i love this because it's not really an area of the country that i've had people on the show from before we've been all over the world and around the country for sure but there's definitely unique experiences in the different states in the different parts this is one that i haven't i haven't heard so what was it like growing up there and then what was the spiritual climate like in your family
1: You know, it's interesting for me because I grew up in, as I said, southwestern Pennsylvania among the coal fields. My family were all generational coal miners since my great-grandfather escaped England. Escaped because he had been in prison there and he came to the States. And he landed in these hollows and hills of southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, My family, hardworking. My grandfather had eight children. Therefore, I had eight great-aunts and uncles They all had many children. Out of that came my father. Out of that, obviously, I was born. And so I lived in an area that was family everywhere, Uh, all around the different hillsides and hollows and streams. I could find somebody that was related to me. Uh, Interestingly, in my family, good people, hardworking people, but also some very criminal elements like my own grandfather. They didn't pay much attention to the law when it was to their advantage not to they had a disdain for religion they didn't trust people that were educated uh fiercely loyal to one mm. another and yet were known to fight among one another and uh experienced uh, a combination of acceptance and trauma uh throughout my childhood because of the nature of the life that they introduced us to
0: yeah and you go into that that quite a bit it's it's um it's very interesting. So, so, so much of that intrigues me, like being distrustful of educated people, right? Like that's uh, uh what? Why? Why do you think that is? Well,
1: I think it has to do with insecurity. Yeah. Um, my father only went to the fifth or sixth grade. His father, the same his father the same. I think that they felt that individuals were educated, that maybe were able to articulate themselves better or had better jobs, were arrogant. And so the combination of their insecurity and the possible arrogance of others uh, caused my tribe to not particularly care for educated folks and they would actually uh, look down on them. I can remember very, very well that in a an area where, uh, working hard. And I used to say that our family, uh, crest were blue collars and red necks and our (laughs) cologne for men was diesel fuel and dirt. And when they got around somebody that was educated, prim and proper, they would do just about anything to make them feel insecure. If they didn't understand hunting and fishing, uh, working in the woods, if they didn't have dirt under their fingernails, they weren't quite sure they could trust this kind of folk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess this is a bit of an aside, but I think that dynamic endures today, doesn't it? And so we see that playing out in some ways in our in our culture, um, which we don't have to get into. But it just occurred to me. It was kind of an interesting idea. Um, okay, so tell us more about, like, so spiritually, there was no, you, you distrusted the religious. What what was that like for you? I know that you went through some trauma. Certainly, talk about how your family, you know, didn't really attach and kind of shamed you in a lot of ways as a kid.
1: Yes, I, Eric, I, I experienced some significant trauma as a little kid, and part of it came uh, through a grandfather. Uh, my grandfather did have a very charming side, but also a criminal side to him. Our family tolerated his womanizing. And uh, when I was a little boy one night, the first trauma that I remember was he Took me for a ride late at night, and the next thing I know, we're going back a two-track, clear out into the woods. He pulls a revolver out of the glove box, tells me to lay on the floor, and off he goes for almost an hour. I'm a five-year-old kid laying on the floor in the back seat, scared out of my mind, hearing branches hit the side of the tree and wind whistling. He comes back after an hour. I'm half out of my mind, gets in the car, all perspiring, takes off down the road and tells me not to tell anybody. Well... (laughs) Eventually, I did tell my parents, who acted like I made the story up at the time, but later my dad admitted that my grandfather was out having an adulterous relationship with a neighbor lady, and that's how he would sneak down to her house when her husband was on afternoon shift in the mines. And that left, my my family didn't process trauma. They didn't process issues. I saw my grandfather die right in front of me, a very loud, horrific moment of death. And I was probably five feet away when he fell at my feet. And my family basically would just, we got to move on now. We don't talk about it. And as a kid, I became very nervous. I was afraid of death, quite frankly, afraid it would come suddenly. I didn't Mm -hmm. like to see lights turned off at night for fear that death would sneak in on me. And my, my family didn't really deal with it. They just shamed me over it. And there was some calling me of a weenie or... Uh, My mother referred to me as a nervous child, and they never considered that the multiple traumas I experienced as a young child may have contributed to some deep insecurity inside of me. And so that was very difficult. And as I got a little bit older, then I tried to use aggression as a way of running away from my own anger uh, and my own fears, uh, which I did until there was a turning in my life.
0: Yeah, so... Did you ever think about God as a kid?
1: I thought about God as a kid, but for very negative reasons. My Mm. mother, though she didn't go to church, would use God as a behavior modifier. And she Uh, would often say as we were walking off to school, six, seven, eight years old, now you behave today or God can knock that face right off of you. So God was somewhat of a capricious ogre. So yes, I thought of him, but I didn't think of him as somebody that I wanted to lean into. Mm. It was another way in which I was being controlled by fear. Um, And it wasn't until later that my mother did have an experience later on in my early teenage years that started to get us turning toward God. But until that time, uh, I was as afraid of God as I were uh, afraid of uh, the violent people that were part Mm. of my world.
0: Wow. Which makes sense because that was kind of your experience of people. We have this... You know, a, this normal reaction of interpreting God through the relationships that we already know.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not saying my mother and dad didn't provide the basics. They certainly did. But yeah. my mother herself was uh suffering because of her horrible childhood with borderline personality disorder. My dad had been abandoned and beat up as a kid. So they bring all of that into our family, which means there's always tension, anxiety. And then when you deal with the fact that you're in situations where your family is being accused of crimes or my uncle next door was angry and shot my aunt in the chest and you're a kid and you experience that and you see that and you hear the stories of that your world is very very insecure and then you're picked on because you are insecure so you have to kind of develop a false self to get along in life and it it was it was just difficult no doubt
0: yeah yeah okay that's a great term for it develop a false self because that's what happens, right? We, we build up this way of being in the world in order to try to protect ourselves because we think that's how we have to do it. The weird thing is we don't believe or we don't know that everybody else also has that, right? And so we just think that that's how they, they are showing up.
1: Absolutely. I, you know I look back now and I can say that I think I lived in a world similar to the world today that communicated to me and communicates to people that as you are, you're not enough, So you're going to have to measure up if you want to be accepted or loved, if you want to be significant. And so you get in this double bind that you're being told you're not enough and the only way you can get the goodies out of life is to become enough. And so you've got to figure a way out of performing. And so here we are. We develop a false self. We find a way to try to manipulate our world to our advantage. And that still happens to many people Mm. today. And frankly, there are a lot of people that are followers of Christ, followers of Christ that are still living out of this projected false self because they've never really learned the wonder of who they are in Jesus. And often that's because of the wounds that they're carrying
0: in their lives. Amen. Amen. I'm convinced that the, the way that we talk about self is really damaging in the Christian community. Most of the time, because we act as if self is always bad, but actually even Jesus had a self, right? So, um, but we could we could talk about that some more later. Um, so interesting. Tell us about the story of how you found Jesus. Cause you, you, uh, Kind of that was that was a sort of still a fearful experience, but you definitely wanted to come to him.
1: Yeah, there are two things that really impacted my own journey toward Jesus. The first one was when I was a young teenager, my mother uh, made her way to a revival. My dad, of course, uh, would mock her for this, but she did. A lot of people in our community were going to this revival. Now, Eric, the interesting thing is. You know, looking back, this revivalist was half revival, half vaudeville show. (laughs) And uh, he would bring a song leader and the song leader would be singing. And while he's singing, the song leader leading the congregation, the speaker would dress up like Jesus. And then he would peek through a window of the church or he would peer over the balcony or look out from behind a pillar or open a door. And people would swoon as if it were Jesus. And then once the song service was out, this guy would come out in street clothes and he would preach. Well, my mother went to this. And quite frankly, somewhere in the midst of all this, she actually was touched by Christ. And it was a weird combination of she's born again, and there's some legalism in there, a little Pentecostalism, but it did begin to bring a change. She actually took me one night, scared the daylights out of me, when right up front in the door to my left, I see the doorknob turning, and suddenly it opens, and there's Jesus peering at me, and he didn't seem all that happy to see me. And then (laughs) all of a sudden, he disappears. but. It did begin to birth something in me. And sometime after that, I was invited to go to um, a David Wilkerson crusade. And he was being sponsored by Catherine Coleman. And he brought some of his uh, his uh, folk that were drug addicts and so forth. And he preached this frightening sermon on the sword of the Lord is coming through the land. Mm. And that if we don't know Jesus, we will be cut down by that sword and burn in hell forever. And uh, it scared the daylights out of me. I tried to run out of the Syria mosque, but then after I got outside, I knew I didn't know where in the world I was. So I, I went into the restroom to wait for my bus ride home, and he was preaching right in the restroom. And eventually, I went forward because I didn't want to go to hell. And to be honest with you, there, kneeling, scared out of my mind, I had a sweet presence of Jesus come into my heart. And it didn't seem to match the message, but there was a touch in my heart. And it was genuine, but... Not knowing how to follow Christ, I kind of spent the next six or seven years trying to decide if I was going to be a disciple or a devil. And I think I was leaning more on the devil side. Uh-huh. But somehow Jesus had placed a homing device in me. And that homing device eventually, as I was ending my college career, that homing device drew me back to Christ. And that became that great turning where I knew this is the life
0: I want. Yeah, Okay, so I think that's super fascinating, one, that your experience uh, in the middle of a place that's using condemnation to preach the gospel of no condemnation, uh, your experience of Jesus' love and, and very warm and welcoming, That that's uh, super fascinating. Did that confuse you?
1: Well, I think what it does is it puts you in a double bind, and it was a similar double bind to the one I had with mom because... Borderline personality sends the message, come close, get away. Come close, get away. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I had this unbelievable experience with God that said, come close. And yet there was this message, you better be careful because like Santa Claus, he's looking to see who's naughty or nice. But yeah. when he picks out the naughty, the coal's on fire forever. And, and so that became a little bit of a tension. But, you know, God's love was relentless. And over time, his love actually began to run further ahead of me than the whole idea of being chased down by his wrath. And uh, as I began to move out of college and decide I want to spend my life with the Lord, I began to have a basic understanding that God's love is an active part of this. But I still had a long way to go because, quite frankly, Eric, I carried a lot of the unresolved baggage of my past into uh, becoming a follower of Jesus.
0: Yeah, well, we all do, right? That—that's one of the one—I think one of the messages, and He's really faithful to lead us through that um, and to heal us if we are willing to go. Um, I'm interested in so when you decided to actually change, because that was a pretty big moment when you decided to go. No, I'm I'm in on Christ. Tell us that story and uh, how that happened.
1: Well, it was my senior year of college. I had been, as I said, probably investing more in being a devil than a disciple. And one night I was just out doing things I shouldn't have been doing. I mean, unethical things, immoral things. And uh, I came home and I was alone and uh, I was in my apartment. And all of a sudden this deep, dark, uh, conviction came over me, but it wasn't even conviction. It was a sense of being lost, that I was falling into a dark hole. And it both frightened me and awakened me. And I got out of the bed and I went for a long walk. And I was walking the streets at like one thirty-two in the morning, just feeling this, I, I'm going the wrong path. This isn't the way I should be going. I could feel this heaviness. And as I went into downtown, there was there was this pizza shop. And I knew that above the pizza pizza shop, there were a bunch of Christian college students were living up there in an apartment. And I went up there and I knocked on the door and one of them came to the door and they saw me and knew my reputation. What do you want? And I told them, I've got to, I've got to give my life to Christ. A couple of the guys weren't so impressed, but one of them said, come in. And I knelt at a chair and I cried my eyes out. And all of a sudden it just it was like a deliverance where the the darkness of my past began to fall away and i i felt this acceptance by christ in the midst of my own brokenness and all i had was a big yes i want a yes for the rest of my life i want to walk after jesus i want to follow his path i want to know him and that began my movement actually toward uh spending my life uh, serving jesus
0: yeah so did you end you ended up I can't remember if you went to seminary. You ended up teaching at seminary, but you did go to seminary eventually, right? You felt called to ministry after that?
1: Oh, yeah. After that event, I went and worked as a carpenter for about a year. Mm. And in the midst of that, the Lord called me to ministry. I went to seminary, got a Master's of Divinity there for three years, started to pastor a church. While pastoring that church, I went on and got a doctorate. And after 10 years of pastoral ministry, I was invited to join the faculty of uh, Alliance Theological Seminary up in Nyack, New York. And I went up there for several years uh, and began to teach in seminary, which, you know, it was a it was a great gift. Mm. But I have to reemphasize this point: when when I did not experience the healing of the emotional ruptures of my past, all the way back to things that happened with my grandfather, I, I was out distancing it by performance. But there was an eroding that was taking place in life, and even when I said yes. To being the head of a seminary, I was saying yes more out of woundedness than I was out of the call of God. And, and, and I left New York. I was invited to become the dean of a, kind of the, the head of a graduate program out in uh, Simpson University. And while there, I started a church, and that church just exploded in growth. And boy, achievement, performance, good things happening, write a few books, but the anxiety began to chase me down. And eventually, even in the midst of all of this success, success by other people's eyes because of achievement and performance. I ended up having a a real serious breakdown with anxiety and depression. And quite frankly, I had to admit myself to uh, a psychiatric hospital to try to get treatment because I I couldn't function anymore. I spent most of my time either afraid or weeping and Mm. I needed some serious help. And at that time I was pretty sure my ministry was over, even though it looked good. I didn't think I could ever function at that level again.
0: Yeah. Um, I have so many questions about that, partly because um, I know that it was, you had all this unresolved trauma and things that you had to work through and you were, it was really performance based. Would you say that you were kind of like, I could build the thing that looks really good, but can you sustain it? Well,
1: the performance orientation, I mean, uh, people came to Christ under my ministry. People were, you know, loving Jesus. That was all good. But for me, I wasn't resting my identity securely in God and his love and the fact that I'm safe and significant with him. I was only safe and significant if I performed, if I did better. And so all of a sudden, look, you you become a head of a seminary, you pastor a fast-growing church, you write a few books, you're out speaking. Well, it wears you out if you're doing that to try to prove yourself. And that's what was happening. And all the while, this trauma from the past That had never been dealt with the unresolved emotional ruptures, they were present and they were screaming at me, and eventually I couldn't silence their voice anymore.
0: Right. Okay. So you decided to check into the, uh, to the uh, facility. How how did that, how did God meet you there? Because I'm really I'm really interested in, you know, you had this kind of view, you were operating in this, uh, I guess, false self, you could say. And then God kind of breaks that down and then meets you there. So tell us that story.
1: Well, first, th- there's no kidding. Admitting yourself into a psychiatric lockdown facility is, is not a life goal. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't on my bucket list. It, and it was very, very difficult. There were Christians in this facility, and the one thing they were able to do for me is to show me the degree to which I was living by performance and by achievement. And that was a gift because their emphasis was, who are you in Christ? What's true of you in Christ? What's true of you today, whether it's the worst day or your best day? And that was very, very helpful for me. Uh, That began helping me step out to realize, oh, my goodness, I've been trying to prove myself to God. My theology has really been more that, yes, Jesus did a lot for me, but if I don't make up for what Jesus did, didn't do for me, then I'm going to be in trouble. That all began to get settled. But, Eric, the piece that didn't get settled in the psychiatric hospital that God continued to work afterwards was the healing of the emotional ruptures to the past. The psychiatric hospital was a great place for me to be safe, for me to be cared for, for me to uh, understand that performance is not the way to go. But they did not deal with this idea of emotional ruptures from when you're Mm -hmm. five years old and seven years old and 10 years old, of living in a family where there was uh, violence and crime. It was kind of like get your thinking in order and your life will follow. But it was after the psychiatric Mm -hmm. hospital that the Lord really began to speak to me about meeting me in the unrepaired Ruptures of my past.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that is so powerful. I deal with that all the time. Um, The idea of get your, what you just said there, get your thinking in order and your life will follow. How much of what we do in the church sends that message? And the idea that if you just knew more, if you just believed better, uh, then you did the right things. Knowing and doing becomes the ultimate goal. I think so many of our churches are structured that way. Um, It's actually hindering to people's spiritual growth, not developing it.
1: You know, it's interesting, Eric, that because of what I do, I've I've read a lot about behavioral science and neuroscience. And today, neuroscientists are saying that our brain is fundamentally shaped by emotion-laden experiences. Wow. And so, you know, we have these emotional experiences of the past. Some of them are positive. Many of them are positive. Some of them are toxic. But the brain is shaped through these experiences. And one of the things that neuroscience say today is that concepts alone won't reshape the brain. They won't rewire the brain. That if you have a toxic experience of the past, you need to have some way in which you now have a positive emotion-laden experience that can, if you will, process that pain and help you reorient your life. And so a lot of a lot of Christianity is based on, and boy, I'm, hesitant because I want people to be sure they hear this. If you learn the truth, you will be able to live after the truth. Well, the problem is, let's just say this, for example, there's a scripture that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Great scripture. It's about God's love. But if you've been abandoned as a child and your parents left you and you were lonely, that's an emotion laden experience. And when the night gets dark and the wind is howling, you begin to believe that you're alone and that you're abandoned. And then someone says, well, just confess the scripture. I will never leave you or forsake you. You want to do it. You feel like you should be able to do that, but you can't do it. Because you have wired in your head, in your brain, a real emotion-laden, toxic experience. Yeah, And just putting a concept or a scripture in it doesn't rewire the brain. You need to experience what that scripture says. You need to experience the presence of the Lord in the midst of your abandonment that then enables you to now have a new emotion-laden experience. And Eric, if I may, this turning point for me came... After I came home from the hospital and I had been carrying scriptures in my back pocket and memorizing scripture, but it wasn't really making movement. I, I decide in frustration, I'm sitting by a fire and I read my Bible and all of a sudden I read the story of Jesus at Gethsemane mm-hmm. and lights just came on. I saw, wait a minute, Jesus is really hurting here. He understands hurting and he needed friends to support him. But when he was hurting, God didn't give him a scripture. God gave him an experience of his presence with angelic visitors. And I began to turn and cry and say, God, that's it. I need some way to experience you in the unrepaired ruptures of my past that keep running me down. And that was the turning point. That's where the Lord began to teach me how to be positioned to experience him in the ruptures of the past, to feel his presence, to download that toxic emotion, and to suddenly have Jesus there bringing light where there was darkness. That was the turning point for me.
0: Wow, that's powerful. Okay, so give us some examples of how the Lord took you into uh, experiences of healing as well.
1: Okay, uh, the one, one of the ones that uh, is easy to tell is that um, for a lot of reasons, I was not motivated as a student. I like sports or I like skipping school. And uh, one day I came in. I had been playing basketball. I might have been at basketball practice. I came into our home. There's some relatives there. My mother had made buns. They're sitting in the living room uh, kind of laughing and, you know, uh, enjoying each other. And I came in to kind of get part of it. And I had my report card, and I put it up on the mantle. And I'm listening and eating a nice fresh bun. And all of a sudden, my mom gets up, and she walks over to the mantle. She picks up the report card. She slides it out of its little envelope and she starts reading my grades to everyone d and then she'd say geography d algebra d minus and she goes all the way down and the room got silent and i was humiliated and then very carefully she puts it back inside the envelope and the image in my mind was it was like my mother was sliding a blaster cap into a stick of dynamite she then put it on the mantle tapped it walks by, looks at me Mm -hmm. while everyone's silent and said, it's okay, Terry. Everyone knows you have nothing but horse crap for brains. They all laugh and I'm sitting there and I just feel absolutely broken and humiliated. Now for years, even after I proved myself academically, I believe that fundamentally my brain was filled with horse manure and it never allowed me to celebrate what I could accomplish academically. And one day in the midst of my own healing, that was one of the memories the Lord brought up. And suddenly I could be there again in my mind's eye. My imagination took over. I was there. I remembered my feelings. I I felt like crying and screaming. And suddenly in the midst of that memory, I could see Jesus walk right into that living room with me. And he pulled me to himself. And he just started to say things like, Terry, I know that hurt but it's not true I want you to hear what I have to say about you and he started saying things like you're fearfully wonderfully made I'm proud of you you actually have my mind and it was such a powerful episodic experience that it became more important to me than what had happened to me as a teenager and suddenly a shift occurred and I no longer believed what mom had said in her brokenness But I could believe what Jesus said, and there was a freedom that came with it. And that was one of many, many experiences I began to have where Jesus would walk me into the unrepaired emotional rupture of the past, and he would bring a new perspective with his presence. And that became the foundation of how I started to help others.
0: Yeah. So the the hard part of that is you have to be willing to walk into it, right?
1: You do, but <laughs> this is what I often say to people. Many individuals come to the point they have nowhere else to turn. If your coping mechanisms, if your defense mechanisms, if your addictions are killing the pain, you're probably not gonna want to turn into it. But when you get to the point where you know I don't know where else to go, Lord take me on a healing journey, that's when hmm. it begins. And most of the people that come my way for help, they're at that point in their life. They're just not looking for another thing to do. They've reached a barrier in their Christian life. They know there's more. They're tired of being chased down by the past, and all of a sudden they say whatever it takes. I, I know this sounds silly and humorous, but I, I've often said, you gotta, you got to get to the phase in your own brokenness that if somebody said, if you smeared peanut butter on your forehead, it would help, and all you said was, is that chunky or creamy? <laughs> then you're at the stage where you can get help
0: all right. because
1: you're so desperate. You do almost anything. And then when you get to that stage, all you do is say, Jesus, you're in charge now. And I tell people, don't take a pick and shovel into your past. Just say to Jesus, are there unrepaired wounds mm-hmm. and false beliefs? And are there losses in my life that are getting in my way of the freedom that is mine in you? And the Lord will bring them to the surface, some of them small, some of them grand, But all of a sudden you begin to meet him there and you'll experience enough healing in one moment that you'll begin to say, I want all the healing that's available.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking about there's an inherent belief there that Jesus wants to heal these experiences and he wants to correct our beliefs. So this is an interesting thing I've been wrestling with a little bit lately that You know, we tend to think of beliefs as these sort of academic or doctrinal ideas that we should believe about who God is and uh, sin and humanity and all that kind of stuff. But we also have these kind of beliefs that show up that we, like you were saying, that we believe because of experiences that we've had. Um, And so when Jesus starts to heal those, that really is the kingdom of God coming now and present. Um, and you're right. We have to we have to get to that place where it's we just desperately want it in order to turn towards it. Wow! Tell us how you started then this ministry of kind of bringing this healing to other people.
1: Let me back up to say that when I was in the psychiatric hospital. I was warned that if I ever told anybody that I had been in psychiatric hospital, my ministry would be over. Yeah. Well, how do you not tell? And I did tell. And I guess to some degree, my ministry ended, that whole performance achievement piece. So I come out of the hospital. God starts healing me in some of these areas. And uh, I had an occasion, you know, to share it with a small group of people. And they're like, wow. We need this. And so I started to pray for them. And then I had a friend that actually became my friend. He was the clinical director of the hospital I was in. He asked me to come and tell my story uh, to uh, another hospital he was working in. And they brought their psychiatric staff, and I told it. And God bless that little group. And then he said, Hey, I have a friend named Dave Dravecki. He was a baseball player. He has a ministry now because he went through cancer. Yeah, I went up and shared with his staff. And all of a sudden, I'm finding that people, instead of rejecting me because I've been through this dark brokenness, are actually wanting to listen Mm. to how Jesus healed me in the midst of it. So I began to just do a little writing, and I wrote a An initial book called Wounded, which was out a long time ago. And then I wrote a book called Draw Close to the Fire. And then I'm asked to write a book on how to position people. And the next thing I know, I'm holding multiple seminars a year. Like this year, we'll have over 2,000 people attend seminars where I'm training and teaching them about God's love, about his healing power, about how to position the broken. So really what began is just me telling my story opened up the door for other people to meet Jesus in their story. And I think that's so critical. Christ doesn't want just part of our story. He wants our whole story. And Eric, here's something I learned. I basically had been taught that you have to kind of be better than you are, manage your sins so you can get on the Mount of Transfiguration and spend time with Jesus. I learned that Jesus does some of his best work in the ditch. And so here I am I'm in a ditch trying to get myself out and I turn and look and Jesus is right there he's helping me and 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 he's healing me and as I began to share that all of a sudden it opened up a whole new way of ministry I, I tell people God opened up a vein of gold and wow. I don't know how he did it or why he did it but I've been mining that vein of gold for people for 20 years now and we've seen thousands changed and that's one of the reasons I wanted people to hear this
0: story yeah Wow. Okay. So you're still, uh, you're still from a family of miners. You're just uh, mining something different.
1: Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it's interesting because my grandfather not only had his own wildcat mine, but he had heavy equipment and he used to go and dig foundations. And one of my earliest memories with him was him sitting me on his lap as he was using his bulldozer to dig out a foundation so somebody could build a secure house. And one day I thought, wow. I think I'm doing that now. I just mm. do it in a completely different way. I'm helping people dig down into the place of their identity in Christ so that they can have a secure identity and that that what a gift it is for me to be able to still you know enjoy and dig deep.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's almost like when Jesus uh, says to a group of fishermen, "Hey, you're going to be fishers of men, right? <laughs> he still That's
1: does exactly that. Right. I never thought about that, but yeah, uh, different bulldozer. yeah. Absolutely same image.
0: Yeah. Takes takes a guy from a family of miners and says you're gonna mine gold, not coal. Wow. That is beautiful. Um, okay, so what are I'm really interested because I know that a lot of people need this. They they need inner healing, they need to invite they, Jesus in. Um, I don't want to position it as um something that you have to do that's extra. It's an invitation, though, that Jesus is offering. What what are some of the reasons that people either don't hear or avoid that invitation? And how can we, how can we uh, just, how do you kind of get around that?
1: Well, I think there are several factors. Uh, let, let's start with, and boy, I hate to say this, but not every local church is a safe place to admit your brokenness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are some churches that are very oriented, like, I was to performance orientation. Also, as you know this, that many people outside of the church think that judgment is our primary occupation. Mm-hmm. And so here's somebody that's hurting. They want to grow. But how do you say uh, even things like uh, I, I have this addiction and I don't know what pain that it's killing or how do I tell a story about being abused or sexualized? It's it's a very difficult journey. I remember reading in Phil Yancey's book, What's Amazing About Grace, a story of a woman that was going through a tough time and a man said, have you ever thought of going to church? And she said, church, I already feel bad enough about myself. Uh-huh. Why would I want to go to church? So I think part of it is the church has to become an unconditionally loving, confidential, non-condemning, non-judgmental community where we all admit that we're wounded, where we're meeting Christ in our wounded, where we welcome the wounded. You know, when you look at the story of the Beatitudes, Jesus is basically saying the bruised, the beat up, the battered on, they do well in the kingdom of God. Scorekeepers, rule keepers, they have a tougher time. Yeah. And, and so I think one of the reasons we, we have trouble with this journey is that. I think another reason is that we live in a world that says, as you are, you don't, you don't measure up. Mm-hmm. So who wants to go show areas in which they don't measure up? But here's what I think is the most critical part. I think many of our churches give the impression that if you believe the right thing, your life will get in line. And what we need to be able to say is there is often a difference between what is real for a person and what is true. God's word is true, but for many people, it's not real because they've been abandoned. They've been beat up. They have not been safe. These are real, deep, episodic wounds And all of a sudden we just give them a scripture that says perfect love casts out fear and you feel guilty because you can't experience it. What we need are churches that position people for experiences of Christ that are loving, caring, empathic, so that instead of giving them the scripture, perfect love casts out fear, let's take the fearful and try to love them with a perfect love so that now... It's not only a true scripture, it is real in their lives. And I think that's one of the issues that we have to be able to to help people with, is how do we position them for positive, episodic healing experiences where the church is a healing community?
0: Wow, amen. I think we have to expect it too, right? We have to know that that's available. I, I grew up my entire life not knowing that kind of healing was available. But I always had this question— um, and I, I tell people all the time. Back when I was in high school, my question was, "How do you grow in Christ?" Because I would see my little church. We'd have the same conversations, the same arguments, the same sermons, everything, right? Year after year after year. And I was I was going like, "I don't. It's not what I see in the New Testament. It's a different kind of thing, right? Like they they did something different. They had power in their relationship. Where do I get that? And uh, I think what I came conclusion I came to is we don't know because. We don't have it. We don't see it, at least in my little evangelical part of the world.
1: You know, Eric, um, it's interesting the difference, uh, the nuances and difference between the Greek word faith and the Hebrew word faith, emunah. Hebrew word, uh, Greek words, of course, pistis. Pistis seems to be very oriented toward you learn the right truth, you understand that truth, now you base your faith on that truth. It's a very cognitive piece. But, you know, the Old Testament notion of faith is, if I could give a metaphor, it's believing that God is on the move, that there's a mighty flow of God's presence, and faith is jumping in. So there's an experiential component, not just a cognitive component. And I think this is what Jesus was pointing to when he said, there are streams of living water— God's in the move right now. Today, as we talk right where you and I are here, God's present. His spirit is moving. He's, He's doing a great work. And we've got to ask the spirit to help us get in that flow. This is why when Jesus was asked, why do you do the things you do? He said, I only do the things I see the yeah. father doing, meaning he looked for the flow. He jumped into the flow and great things happen. We need to help people get into the flow of what God is doing in life. And it's not just belief. Belief's important, but it's also these experiences of God's wonder and presence. And that's why, you know, Paul emphasizes, what's he say? I don't come with persuasive words. I come with a demonstration of power. He later says in chapter four of First Corinthians, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. It's that combination of reading the narrative of scripture and then looking for where God is doing it now and jumping in.
0: Yeah. Do you practice... Uh, healing prayer on your own? No, no.
1: I mean, in a moment of time, you know, you can you can see something you suddenly believe, and you go, "Wait a minute, that's based on something in the past," and you can rebuke it. But the deepest healing of our lives, we need support. Mm. Jesus wanted support the night he was in Gethsemane, and God had to send angels to give it. I think we need help. We need people that understand the journey. That's why I've been raising up the Healing Care Center, uh, where. If individuals want, they can come to retreats or they come for counseling and care. And there's also now countless people around the country that know and understand the journey of healing. It's best to have somebody there with you uh, that can provide guardrails, that can be encouraging, that can be a vessel of the Spirit's presence.
0: Yeah, and that's really, in the truest sense of the word, ministry. Right, to show up and be that person to somebody and And just tell them who they really are.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, provide guardrails. Inside the guardrails, the person can say what they need to say and cry and lament and jump up and down and scream if they want. But you're there to be safe and invite Jesus in, in order that he can bring healing to many of these unrepaired ruptures of the past. I I believe this, Eric, many, Mm -hmm. many Christians, good Christians want more they believe there is more but they come against this wall and sometimes all we tell them when they come to that wall is pray more read more do more when what the wall really is it's a barrier filled with wounds and false beliefs and and ungrieved loss and we need to help them deal with that and suddenly that wall becomes a pathway to a whole new tomorrow
0: yeah absolutely Wow, okay. So going through all of that certainly has shaped and changed your life. What's um like what what can we leave people with about this process from your life that um maybe has defined uh how you see yourself uh in Christ?
1: Well, I think the most important episodic experience I've had is the Lord speaking into me who I am in Jesus. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, it's the three eyes. Jesus, born of a woman, came that we might be, and then it, it, it says that we might be children of God, that we would be filled with the Spirit, that we might have an inheritance. So I always say to people, change really comes when you understand your identity, when you're aware of how secure you are in Jesus. He did it all. He assigned your name to his life so that All through eternity, you are embraced by God. Identity is important. You need to know there's an intimacy that you can experience. Christianity is not transactional. It's not like buying a soda where you give the machine six quarters and you get the soda back. No, it's relational. There's an intimacy. And finally, that there is an inheritance. And many of us are trying to build the Christian life on performance, not Mm -hmm. knowing that it can only be built successfully on inheritance. And so these were the things that really have continued to shift in my own life that has brought more and more freedom, more and more confidence in Christ, identity, intimacy, inheritance. That's the foundation of a vibrant Christian life.
0: Yeah. Amen. All right, Terry, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Friends, the book, again, is some kind of crazy. You can get it wherever you get great books. It's out already. And uh, as always, I have links for you at halfwaytherepodcast.com. You can just go there, hit the show notes. And there's links to Terry's website if you want to connect with him. um, And also to to the book uh, where you can pick that up. Terry, thanks for being here. Is there anything else you want to leave us with?
1: I guess I would leave you with this. God's absolutely nuts about you. (laughs) And he wants to meet you in every aspect of your story. And when you do, life really changes. And Eric, thank you. It's been a joy to be with you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.